Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And joining me for today's podcast is Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing? Uh, it seems like uh, we're here again and have, have tough things to talk about. So, Yeah, that's uh, definitely a pattern here lately. Um, also joining us today for uh, what is going to be a difficult conversation is Megan Payne. Megan, how are you? I'm doing well as, you know, it, all things considered. But I'm with Luke and with you that this is going to be a tough podcast and it's been a a tough time to live in these United States. Oh, it has. Um, So on today's podcast, we are going to reflect about the events of the last week. Um, It would be hard not to know what has been going on in the last week, uh, but we are going to talk about the murder of George Floyd by police in Minneapolis. Uh, That murder which uh, resulted in George Floyd joining a list that is way too long of of black people in this country who have been killed by police. Um, That action resulted in demonstrations in cities across the country to demand an end to this kinds of violence and uh, big foundational changes to institutions in this country that have upheld racist systems of oppression for far too long. And, those events present for us a conversation about what to do moving forward. Um, So we're going to talk about different policy ideas that are in the mix about solutions that are, would hopefully reduce and ultimately eliminate some of this violence against black Americans in our country perpetrated by police. Um, And then as we usually do within the context of our show and the approach that we take, we're going to talk about how those ideas for reform and, and more radical ideas for more foundational change, how those will be heard out in our own politics here in Georgia and in what, what you as a listener can keep an eye on moving forward. Um, before we get into that though, I think it's worth prefacing this conversation by acknowledging that all three of the panelists on today's show are white Uh, two of us cis white men, you will hear from voices of color on this show from black people who were involved in uh, the criminal legal system in in various kinds of ways. Representative Eric Allen, a a Democrat from Smyrna, you'll hear a little bit of an interview from him. We are also talking this week with Destiny Bryan, a a candidate for district attorney uh, in the Alcove district in in an area that's kind of east of the city of Atlanta, out in the the suburbs out there. Um, And then we'll talk with Mocha Jasmine Johnson, who is a candidate for the Georgia House of Representatives, um, House District 117 in the Athens area. Uh, She is also a leader of activist movements and protest movements herself in the Athens area. Um, And so our hope is to elevate the voices of Black Georgians, of Black Americans who experience systemic racism and its effects across our society in in more personal ways and and try to center this conversation on their experiences and on solutions that help combat this problem. Um, But we certainly come to this conversation with a degree of humility given our own backgrounds and our own experiences. And and our hope is just to to elevate good conversation here um, that would help make this a problem that we leave behind in the past. Any other thoughts, uh, Luke or Megan, on just this conversation that we are about to have uh, before we actually have it? Absolutely. I just want to agree with you, Kyle, that we definitely come at this um, with a lot of privilege, and we are hoping to use that privilege to elevate some voices that may not otherwise be heard, especially those, those Black leaders who are here in Georgia who can help us get some good perspective on this. Well said. Okay, so let's get started here. So on May 25th, George Floyd was murdered by police in Minneapolis, joining a list of more than a thousand others who have been killed by police in just the last year. His death compelled activists to take to the streets of cities across Georgia and across the U.S. to demand justice and an end to police brutality. 
But at these demonstrations, police targeted demonstrators and journalists with violence in what felt like a really dramatic escalation and an insertion of partisan politics in some instances into these issues of racial injustice. So the event that really set this off was the murder of George Floyd at the hands of police in Minneapolis. And so I think that is the place to start, at least here for a moment, to get reflections from each of you on, you know, this isn't the first time that we've talked about police shootings, talked about Black Americans being the target of racism, both personally and in a systemic way. But this one seems to have touched a different nerve or or lit a different fire that has spread across cities in this country in terms of activism and in terms of demands for justice. Megan, let's start with you and just your thoughts on being here at this moment yet again, uh, but the demand for justice that we're seeing from people across the country. The demand for justice is totally to be expected. There is a demand for justice many times when we see black folks killed or otherwise harmed at the hands of police or other um, community uh, law enforcement. The deal with George Floyd's murder is that it was the final straw. It was the third high-profile murder of a black American in about four months, and I think people have just had it. And I am, quite frankly... Not glad for the circumstances, but I'm glad that as communities, we have all said enough is enough. This is not acceptable. We will not continue to watch black Americans be killed at the hands of law enforcement. I I think the thing that we could add to this conversation is the fact that we are in different networks than um, some people. And so in my network, I, being from South Georgia, know a lot of people who would traditionally be on the opposition side of Black Lives Matter and similar movements. And literally all three of the recent murders of black people in America, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and now George Floyd, are not just like, oh, that was bad to pretty much everyone I talk to, it it is that this is completely unacceptable. And the thing I think that makes this different on just these incidents in isolation is is that they are all completely unacceptable on every level. And it's undebatable that they're unacceptable. And the people who have tried to, you know, bring up the minor interactions with law enforcement that the murder victims of these cases have had it's just completely on death airs like people don't care anymore like because the sheer absurdity of what has been allowed to be the black experience in america has now just become clear to everyone that this is a fundamental problem that needs to be fixed and now i'm not saying that you know all those people are now carrying black lives matter signs and you know joining the protests but even they who have always found excuses in the past for even cases like trayvon martin in my life and you know the people i've I've persevered trying to speak to and trying to get them to understand even even they are now at a point where it's like this has to stop and i think if anything highlights what the you know total change in um, people's feelings out there is it's that it's that it's so clear now to everyone. Yeah. As we were preparing for this episode, one of the things that was on my mind was to hear directly from leaders of movements about what message they wanted policymakers to internalize from demonstrations in the streets. And so one person we talked to was Mocha Jasmine Johnson. She's a candidate for the Georgia House of Representatives, but she's also a leader of the Athens anti-discrimination movement. And this is what she had to say about the message that demonstrators were sending to policymakers and to the public. We hope that they start to listen and really understand that what is happening, the culture that is happening within um, the criminal justice system is not beneficial to black and brown people or to poor people. Um, We want them to change the laws. We want them to hold police officers accountable. I understand not every cop is a bad cop, but 
if you don't get the bad apples out and you allow them to continue um, to be able to mistakenly, however they want to say, kill somebody, um, and they're not being held accountable to where they have to go in front of a judge and jury, the process, the legal process is unbalanced and it's not fair to black and brown people. And if they, if America wants peace, then they must give us justice. That's what I want them to understand. The other thing that I think has been really clear in watching demonstrations in the streets is how violently they have been greeted by police who ostensibly are there to protect people's First Amendment right to protest and to to demand justice. Well, I, I, would, I would contrast that, Kyle. I would say on paper, that's why they're there. That's why you traditionally would have them there. But I don't think the powers that be in many of those jurisdictions, you know, from, you know, maybe local police officers to the president of the United States, see them as that's why they're there. Um, and we're no, going to get into fact, that later, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, and in fact, I mean, these, so in, instead, I mean, contrary to what you would think, what you would hope might happen, these demonstrations have been met with violence. Police have driven vehicles into crowds, attacked elderly bystanders, shot tear gas and rubber bullets at demonstrators. In Atlanta, police smashed the windows of a car that held two college students and then violently removed them from their vehicle. Um, and in both Atlanta and Washington, tactics like tear gas and rubber bullets were used to disperse demonstrators well before curfews imposed by the cities they were in were supposed to go into effect. We asked State Representative Eric Allen about whether or not the Atlanta police's dispersal of demonstrators in advance of curfew in the incident downtown where two students were violently removed from their vehicle, we asked him if these behaviors by police were appropriate, and here's what Representative Allen had to say about that. In the, instance, in the instances that you, you just mentioned, no. Um, I, I think we've seen the best and the worst of policing um, and really get to the core of some of the problems. Um, I, I think when you have people that are peacefully protesting that are met with the resistance of an of an army, uh, and, and for better or worse, it just it heightens tensions. Um, and I think on the nights where you've seen the police take more of a um, cooperative approach to actually serve and protect the demonstrators as much as uh, you know anything else, I think you've seen those tensions uh, taken down. So uh, the behavior of those specific instances that you mentioned are absolutely not appropriate um, and and can't be tolerated. Um, it, it's really the purpose of why these people are taken to the streets to to make their voices heard about some of the behaviors and treatments of police. And and it also is brought up, not just in Atlanta, but, but across the, the country. Um, it's really shown a spotlight on the way police treat citizens in some cases. And if it's not on video, then there's a completely different narrative pushed forward. And, and I'm I'm very I'm very hopeful once again that what what some of this is going to do is bring more reality uh, or more awareness that it's not always a true statement uh, or an accurate statement just because it's coming from from the police. Megan, what has your reaction been to the images that we've seen in recent days of police sending the message in some instances that they are not here to protect the rights of demonstrators? I've been pretty appalled, as you outlined, Kyle. I think that I I was hopeful at first, especially watching things in Atlanta. The first day or two, there were a few incidents that could have gone better. But for the most part, it was nice to see the chief of police out among the people who were protesting, um, speaking to people, saying that they had a right to make their voices heard and those sorts of things. But at the end of the day, that ultimately ended up being perhaps her own opinions or maybe lip service, you know, it's kind of hard to uh, ascribe motive or, or intent to anything that that she said. To be clear, I'm referring to Chief of Police Erica Shields over Atlanta PD. But what ended up happening shortly after, you know, seeing her make those really good statements is that f- violence ensued. And I don't mean violence from the protesters. I mean violence from the police, overreactions to matters using tear gas, which is chemical warfare against its own citizens, 
um, as Kyle mentioned, tasing of two um, AUC students. There have been some pretty poor examples of policing, not just in Atlanta, but across the U.S. And it is just a further example of why all of this needs to change. You would think that in a time like this, the police would be extra careful. They would acknowledge that people are upset, that things have happened that have been inappropriate, and really do everything they could to de-escalate situations and keep things peaceful. And many police organizations are saying that that's what they're doing, but then we see across the nation how more civilians are getting hurt. More people are having to be defended from p police brutality. More people are getting tear gassed, including children who are at these protests, because it is important for children to understand, too, that the stakes are high. So I don't understand what is happening with our law enforcement. Well, I've seen arguments, and I want to draw one here, that suggests that it's not just, you know, an emotional response on the hands of police, but that the police are acting deliberately in a way that is meant to send a message about who in this country has the right to hold police to account. Jamel Bowie, a columnist at the New York Times, rights of the police violence, he says, we have to treat it as an attack on civil society and democratic accountability, one rooted in a dispute over who has the right to hold police to account. Clearly, the belief of the police is that demonstrators who demand justice for people who have been murdered, or even if they weren't murdered, people who have been harmed at the hands of police, that police don't have to answer to those things. Um, and it stands in stark contrast to demonstrations a few weeks ago where people who were armed stormed the gallery of the Michigan State Senate to demonstrate against stay-at-home orders that were issued as a part of the pandemic. And, and you didn't see the kind of militarized, aggressive, violent response against people who showed up to demonstrate with weapons in stark contrast to what we're seeing on the streets of American cities in this last week. Luke, what do you think of that sort of the general core of that argument from Jamel Bowie about this being a dispute over who has the right to hold police to account? I, I think it's unquestionably true. I, I would just add some other nuances. So while I'm agreeing with that, the other things I would I would say that are part of this conversation is there's a lot of people who have been calling for defunding the police or abolishing the police. That's a big conversation of, uh, you know, the podcast I did with Joey Carter will have out a while back, a, a, a while from now, an Athens activist. And I was a lot more skeptical of it <laughs> when I talked to Joey. But now, as far as the defunding element, I, th I think that's unquestionably the right thing we should be talking about. And, and not from, and this is where I think the branding is kind of bad, where like abolish ICE, I feel like is, it's a good way to get the point across, but kind of confuses the issue. It's kind of unquestionable that we need a police force in the United States that is capable of, you know, enforcing things like traffic and when there are uh, situations where you want cops to show up to. But the the thing that I think this situation and these situ and the police's incredibly aggressive response to peaceful protests just highlights unquestionably is the need for something other than police as a peacekeeping force, people who are trained in how to handle these situations, because while I agree that there are a lot of political and cultural reasons why the police are behaving the way they are, another part of it is they aren't trained to do anything else. The police are not trained how to deal with giant protests in any other way than whipping out the shields and the batons and beating people back when they when they assume they're getting out of control. And the fact that most police forces don't go through serious de-escalation de trainings or anything, you know, how to deal with mental health issues or how to, you know, handle a protest in this way and don't, you know, really see far more training on how to violently push things down like, it's kind of obvious that, one, you're going to attract people who are more interested in those methods, but also, like, even good-intentioned officers really don't have the training to do it or have the support mechanisms in their institutions to do it, and that's why putting more money towards those things is an obvious solution to this problem, which comes back to the point you were making, Kyle, is I think 
police officers feel threatened by that because you know less money in police departments means less jobs less raises less resources etc etc but also less power because the more money an institution gets the more power it has and and so i i think unquestionably that is a strong element of this one more sort of broader piece in the way that this is a debate about power um in a debate about some of the values that we are supposed to hold dear in a democracy and then i do want to get into some of these sort of nuts and bolts type solutions that you alluded to, Luke. Julia Azari and Perry Bacon Jr. wrote in 538 about this really disgusting moment on Monday that I'm I'm almost certain you've heard about at this point. That was when uh, President Trump ordered the National Guard and the U.S. Park Police to use tear gas to disperse demonstrators in front of the White House so that the president could walk across the street from the White House to a church for a photo op where he held up a Bible as if he'd never seen one before. Um, there were, you know, some of the theatrics there were, there were, it, w- it was a funny image, but beneath that funny image of, of Trump as the clumsy autocrat, he seems to be, there was this real violation of democratic values um, that Julia Zari and Perry Bacon Jr. write about that he, he violated three core democratic values one, that people should be treated equally no matter their race. The second, that people should be, that people have a right to peacefully protest. And the third, that uh, the president and political officials should not use the military and police to advance their own political agenda. He knocked out three of those values in one fell swoop. Uh, but the other place where the sort of core values of our democratic society have come into question in this moment has been that amidst all of this violence, journalists have also been a target uh, at these demonstrations. And, you know, after years of Trump chastising the fake news, describing him as the enemy of the people, um, I was just interested in y'all's thoughts on whether or not the instances of violence, again, that are targeted at journalists, um, how alarming you feel like that is uh, at this moment as well. I will say it's pretty alarming. As somebody who covered a press conference last weekend on behalf of Peach Pod um, at Fulton County Jail, there was a really large police presence. um, And there were two news outlets there. There was me on behalf of Peach Pod. And then there was, I believe, CBS 46. And CBS's van was completely taped over all of the logos in white gaff tape, basically. And so I went up to the... Uh, newscaster who was there. And I asked, I said, are we doing something illegal here? Why are you taped over? And he basically said, no, 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 this is perfectly legal. But I'm just trying not to get, you know, draw a whole lot of attention to myself. And with that context, and then having ended up talking to the police before the press conference, because we were not allowed to actually do the press conference on jail property, but we had to go to a gravel lot across the street. Um, they seemed not super pleased to have us there. Um, they were nice enough about it, but by the end of the press conference, the end of the driveway was completely full of police officers just standing around watching us as well as a a few police vehicles. And I personally was worried that something was going to happen as was a few other participants at that press conference. So you've got that, which was a menacing experience, but not an actual experience of, you know, police coming after journalists. But then you have actual examples of police coming after journalists in Georgia. And Atlanta Journal-Constitution, otherwise known as AJC Photographer, who was detained even though she identified herself as press. We have a freelancer and Washington Post journalist who was trying to identify himself as press and was arrested while doing that. We also heard about the CNN reporters being attacked in Minneapolis. Well, not necessarily attacked, but definitely arrested in Minneapolis. Yeah, I mean, I just I have been alarmed by, you know, the other one that just seems particularly bad. It it happened on live TV on local TV in Washington was one of the news crews that was covering demonstrations outside of the White House was attacked by police as a part of that effort to move back demonstrators before the president's photo op. And that actually turned out to be this Australian news crew uh, where this officer beat the 
the cameraman repeatedly with his shield. And it's created this kind of international domestic incident that, you know, lends lends people to the thoughts of media that are covering combat in war zones and how dangerous that can be. But yet, in some instances, it's not as dangerous as covering what's supposed to be a a demonstration against government policies in the United States of America. Like, <laughs> that's just it. You know, it's it's one small example, and and I also don't want to have these concerns over journalists take away from the the violence that was perpetrated directly onto to demonstrators. But like, it to me, this piled on top of everything else you were seeing this week just added to the sense that this has just flown completely off the rails um, and added to my sense of alarm about the situation that we are currently in, given that, you know, we are also in an election year and, and the, the officials who uh, are most visible in this country, the president and Congress are, are supposed to be held to account for the things that are going on in our politics this year. Um, You know, it raises questions about, how that process is going to go the rest of the year. Um, so let's move on here to talk about some of the ideas for reform that are on the table, and then we can talk about whether or not we feel like those ideas can get adopted both within our own politics in the state of Georgia and whether or not these ideas will have national resonance. I think given this sort of off-the-rails sense that, that, it, that we have from the things that we've seen this week, you sort of get the sense that the police – feel like they have political cover for the actions that they are taking. Um, if we come out of this and in a while and none of the ideas that we discuss are, are adopted or are given really serious consideration, I think that may send a message that they were correct in their assumption that uh, they had political cover for what they've been doing. Um, but let's talk a little bit about some of these ideas for reform here. So Demonstrators have really rallied around radical ideas for action in the wake of George Floyd's murder, signs saying abolish the police, defund the police. These signs dot crowds gathered in cities across the country. Uh, But organized groups have also put forward more immediate but more incremental reforms to policing. So let's talk about how policymakers can work through some of these demands for justice and some of the ideas that are on the table for them to choose from. You know, at a, at a very base level, the message that demonstrators are sending to policymakers is that violence against black Americans at the hands of the police, that this must end. But policymakers themselves are the ones that have to put these ideas into action. Um, so let's start with some of the concrete ideas that are on the table. Um, something that has stood out to me is this this group of ideas that are being branded as the eight can't wait agenda. Luke, what is the eight can't wait agenda and what problem does this agenda seek to solve? So this is a collection of proposals that are probably familiar with anyone who's been looking at or hearing about use of force when it comes to police officers. I would say these are the most straightforward and pragmatic requests of uh, demonstrators and things that I would hope people would be able to agree on. Um, So the eight issues are to ban chokeholds and strangleholds, to require de-escalation training, to and to use de-escalation in situations, to require warning before shooting, to exhaust all other means before shooting, requiring police officers intervening in situations where other police officers are using excessive force, uh, banning the shooting at moving vehicles, uh, requiring the establishment of a use of force continuum, and requiring comprehensive reporting. So these these things comparatively have a lot of statistical analysis behind them of things that either cause a lot of deaths or are just bad uh, policing practices that I would hope would be more on the table than completely abolishing police officers for even uh, more conservative individuals. Um, but that that is sort of one of the starting grounds for uh, reform that protesters are calling for. Well, and it's important to note, too. So, you know, this policy, like any other policy, is very complicated. There are a lot of different angles by which you can uh, address the actions of police. Um, this one sort of falls in the bucket of governing use of force situations in a way that is aimed at 
reducing use of force. Um, but there are all kinds of other policy inputs where reform ideas are out there that could be adopted. Another reform agenda, this comes from the same group. Um, this comes from an organization called Campaign Zero, and their broader agenda counts limits on use of force as sort of one plank of their agenda, but they have 10 other, they have nine other planks, 10 total to this agenda. These include ending broken windows policing, expanding opportunities for community oversight, creating more mechanisms to independently investigate and prosecute police abuses, adding to community representation uh, on police forces, making sure the police forces are better reflective of the communities that they serve, uh, providing funding so that officers in all departments have body cameras or, or dashboard cameras or multiple opportunities so that instances of police violence and, and all kinds of police actions are actually documented, enhanced training, ending for-profit policing, which sort of falls under this bucket of not using fines and fees excessively to fund police operations or to fund local government operations, ending the militarization of police by not allowing police departments to receive military equipment from the Pentagon, the Department of Defense, and all other sorts of military agencies in this country. And then uh, finally, negotiating fair police union contracts that, you know, too often police use the bargaining process in the establishment of police unions to institute mechanisms that make it difficult to hold police accountable. You know, they can basically hide behind the provisions in their contract. Altogether, all of these ideas that we're discussing here, in my mind at least, make up a incremental reform agenda that doesn't fundamentally reconsider the role of police in society, but has a goal of improving the conduct of police under basically the existing framework. We're going to get into a more radical approach here shortly, but but just thoughts from from either of you on on this approach, on taking this sort of multifaceted look at all of the ways in which policing works and trying to improve it little by little at a time, that sort of incremental approach. What do y'all think about that kind of an approach? While I wish there were a way to do a total overhaul, as we've seen in many cases with legislation, with any sort of change, sometimes a step-by-step -step approach is more appropriate. And I think that we will ultimately see more success with this approach. Um, so I'm I'm for it, right? At, at the end of the day, any amount of change that improves the way our police handle situations is a good change. Unlike Luke, who um, has talked multiple times about maybe not abolishing the police altogether, I'm pretty a pretty big fan of going ahead and just abolishing the police. Um, there have been some studies um, that a colleague of mine sent me about community policing being much more successful than kind of overarching um, police forces and and those sorts of things. Um, just as another resource for our listeners, a really cool resource to go see what policing might look like near you as far as some of the requirements about use of force um, in your area is called useofforceproject.org. And it's got some really great visuals and it breaks down um, what is and isn't required by the 100 largest city police departments in the Americas. Yeah, Megan, that's a great resource. And it shows that Atlanta only uses two of the eight use of force policies that we started this discussion with. So those are kind of the incrementalist approach. There is, and this is a view that is really central to these demonstrations, there is a view that more radical action is needed. Activists have demanded that cities take a more aggressive action than this reform agenda and have really been holding public officials to account. Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Frey was actually booed off of a stage when he wouldn't commit to defunding and abolishing the police. Let's talk about what this far-reaching agenda based on demands from activists actually means in practice. And I would kind of put it in two different buckets that are kind of defined by the language that is used to talk about these proposals. You know, the first demand, the most far-reaching demand 
from activists is to abolish the institution of police in its entirety. And I don't think that there's much disagreement about what that means. You know, it means to get rid of entirely. And some activists believe that the institution of policing based on its history is so rotten to its core that it needs to be ripped out root and branch and replaced with something entirely different. I think that's the first bucket of demands that you are seeing from activists in the streets. The second bucket, the second bit of language that is used to describe this view is is the call to defund the police. And this one, I think, has a little bit more disagreement about what it means. For people who support abolishing the police, some will use the term defund to essentially mean the same thing as abolish. You know, they put it forward the way you put forward the idea of defunding something in a budgetary context. It means to zero out funding for a program completely and get rid of it. Um, and so, you know, in, in that sense, those two ideas are pretty well intertwined. But I think a second version of defunding the police actually means reducing funding for police and shifting that funding into different uses rather than getting rid of getting rid of the institution of police entirely. Uh, so this could take the form of using a social worker to respond uh, to people in situations of mental health crisis, of people experiencing homelessness, um, or of other sort of societal problems largely driven by the problem of poverty, people who support maybe a more relaxed version of defunding the police mean shifting funding from certain functions of policing and having some other person, some other institution take on some of the responsibility that is currently at the hands of police and bring an entirely different approach, an entirely different mindset to those interactions you know, I think maybe the biggest difference here, when you look at any version of supplanting funding or resources or an approach from police to a different type of institution, is that that person from the new institution is going to come in with different training, a different mindset, and is going to approach these situations typically unarmed, um, so as to send an entirely different message to the person who is in need of assistance, in need of services, Um those, I think, are sort of the two wings of more far-reaching demands that are being put out there by demonstrators now. As we think about this as a question before policymakers, how do y'all think about whether the best path forward is to continue on a path of reform to the existing framework or to adopt this more radical approach of abolishing or, or defunding the police? I don't think it's an either-or answer. I think that the way to actually ensure that this is successful is to go down both paths at once and basically have committees handling both. One of the things that I mentioned the last time I, I spoke on this uh, podcast a few minutes ago is that we find that incremental approaches are sometimes more successful, even if we wish radical ones were what would actually be successful at the end of the day. And I think that the way you ensure that something happens is you have people work on both. You have people work on different types of legislation. You have people work on city councils and on institutions and on anyone who has control of purse strings. Um, you work on elected officials. You work on everybody. And at some point, one of these things is going to move forward and then you can make better decisions once you know what is actually gaining traction. Right now, there are a lot of questions. There are a lot of concerns. A lot of people haven't been convinced. And so really, you just need people to come together and to work on everything at once. To add to what you're saying there, Megan, we, we finally get to say something nice about America <laughs> after all the you know, horrors we've been experiencing uh, in the country, which is one of our great strengths is that we are a... Yeah, you know, the laboratories of democracy concept pretty much stays constant no matter who is uh, in charge of the federal government. And what's really going to happen is that some places are going to try those 10 reforms. Some places are going to try a more abolish the police approach. And some people are going to do nothing. And we're going to get to see the differences of those approaches and which one's more successful and which one people like more and which one produces results because you know just speaking from my own experience 
like many of the elected officials of athens clark county have been part of demonstrations that have had overly policed res like responses to them and like they were there on the ground giving speeches and then seeing what was happening and reporting what was happening and a lot of them were were staying down there as part of a way to ensure that the police did not overreact not the protesters didn't overreact and so with that in mind if you told me you know two years from now the police budget in athens clark was cut in half and or cut by you know a fourth and a bunch of new programs had popped up i would not be shocked i would kind of be surprised if that's not what happens in athens is that some of these approaches even in a incrementalist form of the extreme version of abolish the, abolishing the police is is done um, because that is what mariah parker has been pushing for she has some support on the current uh county commission and based off of the likely election results that we're going to see like she's probably gonna have more support not less especially after the over response in athens and so that's what i think is going to happen is we're going to see a mixture of responses and we'll figure out what works best the one, th the one thing i will say you know incrementalism is a dirty word and i'm a supporter of dirty words and um i think we should not underestimate how much of a positive effect of the 10 things that campaign zero is pushing for would have because it would be a significant change that would bring a part you know uh bring forth a lot of better results but as and again i keep citing a conversation no one's heard besides me and joey carter but in that conversation another thing we talk about is the fact that you know maybe that's not good enough because for some people they accurately look at the history of police forces as being rooted in uh, slavery and slave catching and you know that maybe the institute and maybe that's what we're seeing now with all these protests and how the police has been responding is that maybe that is an institution that has uh gone too far and can't redeem itself i i very rarely agree with those sentiments and you know uh, i i usually think reform is possible and uh, can lead to really good results and so i i am more hopeful that especially with as i was saying earlier in the program where how a lot of people who used to not get it get it now that the message of abolishing the police will lose them whereas if you ask them do you support these 10 things in this campaign zero i really think most of them would say yes and uh those are better fights to have i think when if you're fighting for those things and the police are reacting the way they are um it builds more support um but you know again that that's where that's my privilege speaking yeah i think to me that question that you raised luke i think is probably one of the more important ones because you can imagine under a, a more incremental framework that you could even achieve taking off the plate of police having them respond to people who are in mental health crisis um, you know, they're not typically trained on those skills. Those may not be calls that they feel comfortable doing anyways. You could sort of imagine a a pilot program that just Athens speaks Clark directly County to Clark County actually has, has something like this. It's, it's very yeah. underfunded because it's literally one, it's one guy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but they have a police officer on, on staff who works with the, some, uh, mental health resources and is trained pretty heavily on how to respond to those situations. And I mean, it, it's considered a, a radical success and it's something the County is very proud of. I just <laughs> continue to ask why it's still just one dude, <laughs> because if it is so successful and, you know, many, you know, people I've heard, uh, on the police force or around the police force have said how useful it is to have this guy. Uh, you know, I, I just think it's something that is going to get more attention and should get more attention because there's just, there's so many opportunities to do better that there are a lot of things that will improve the situation. And I, I, for one, always will take an improvement. If you, if you offer me improve, an improvement, I will take it. So I hope that we won't lose sight of those opportunities because, you know, maybe, maybe cutting police departments budgets in half and having community resources, you know, be where that money goes. It's the right call. But I think in the interim, we should do it. And then the other thing too, that I think is equally important is there's going to be a, a 
police function. Someone's going to do it. It might be named something different, but somebody's going to do the job that current police officers are doing, and the campaign zero reforms need to be part of that institution, whatever it is. Yeah, but I, I think you know to um, the second piece of what I was thinking about is you can imagine some of these incrementalist approaches that even speak to some of the ideas that more radical demonstrators are raising None of that, I think, speaks to the organization of police officers and the history that they have with black communities. Reform, reformist approaches to an existing institution, by their very nature, do not get rid of the existing institution root and branch. And I think that that is a question for more incrementalist reformers is, how do you address that reputational problem and I think that that's something that'll be key to this discussion going forward. So we've been talking about these policy ideas and the push and pull of incrementalism versus radicalism in, in kind of an abstract way, but it's policymakers in Georgia, like policymakers around the country, will be pushed to consider reforms to policing practices. They'll be pushed to rethink the role of police in our society and how those things get put into effect in laws and policies here in the state of Georgia. So let's talk a little bit about that discussion that awaits them. Democrats in the Georgia House began this conversation last week by announcing that they would be backing a 10-part Justice for All agenda that responds to demands for police accountability. It also speaks to the context surrounding the murder of Ahmad Arbery in Brunswick. Uh, but they face an uphill battle in a Republican-controlled legislature to get these things written into law. So let's talk about that challenge that is before them. So Democrats in the House are backing a 10-part agenda that includes three proposals that we've talked about before, the pursuit of a hate crime statute that has actually already passed their chamber, and the repeal of the citizen's arrest statute and the stand your ground statute that we talked about in the context of the murder of Ahmad Arbery. And then added to this package on Thursday, they released additional reforms that appear tied in with some of the changes to policing practices that we've discussed on this show so far, including things like banning no-knock warrants, tracking the use of force, removing qualified immunity from law enforcement officers, banning chokeholds by police, and requiring body cameras for all law enforcement agencies in Georgia. And also thrown into this reform proposal are a couple of ideas related to the role of prosecutors, including what they call a change of venue for district attorney and establishing a district attorney oversight commission. Core to this agenda is accountability for police misconduct. Let's hear Representative Allen describe that general goal for this agenda. For a broader standpoint, I mean, accountability is the word. Um, we really have to find a way. Um, to bring accountability, accountability to policing. Um, I, I think for me personally, that's been one of, you know, more of an overarching theme. Uh, when you have officers or members of law enforcement who uh, can falsify reports uh, of an incident and not have severe punishment, um, when those um, complaints against law enforcement are kept from the public um, and, and not disclosed in a way in which we should be able to, to have that transparency, when we hear of law enforcement turning off their body cameras because, you know, right before they engage in an arrest or, or uh, an official act, and, and there's no consequence. I mean, those are all things that I think we should be, be looking at. Uh, and, and we also should be working, you know, as legislators, uh, you know, with our local uh, municipalities and counties, uh, you know, every police agency that, that wishes to, you know, start looking at their own internal policies and look for all those unconscious and conscious biases that they may have. Uh, you know, I, I've talked to a lot of different groups over the last couple of weeks, you know, since this started, and almost every conversation re reveals some blind spot. And it may be a blind spot that I have, uh, but, but more so blind spots that, that law enforcement or, or non-Black um, officials may have. Uh, and we just, we, we need those conversations and we need to start looking at all of those policies. And I would argue not just at policing, but go all the way down through housing, uh, through parks and rec, through transportation, through, I mean, all of these things have this systematic, uh, you know, embedded 
unconscious or conscious racism that we have to have serious conversation about and root out. Megan, one of the proposals in this package is existing legislation that Representative Park Cannon discussed at that press conference that you covered. This is the legislation that establishes a database to track use of force. When you think about the broad goals of this agenda, what do you hope that it accomplishes? I would like to see some items that really hold people accountable. Um, One of the things about the use of force legislation and about stand your ground laws and citizen's arrest laws is you can build into all of these ways to truly make sure that these are enforceable. And I want to see that made very clear, especially as we gather more data for use of force. I want to see there be statewide legislation for to, to that require when law enforcement mishandles a situation that there is absolute action that must be taken and that prescribes the actions. That's what I would really, really like to see because I am sick and tired of there being a lot of wiggle room and a lot of things that are up for interpretation or for, you know, how when you go to court, you have certain sentences that are prescribed for certain offenses. Well, this is a little bit different because not all of these go to court, but I would like there to be certain essentially sentences that are pre-prescribed for any law enforcement officials and their leaders to have to uh, put into place um, if something like this, if if police violence is to occur again. Luke, I think it's pretty safe to say that it is an uphill battle for Democrats to get these policies put into effect. Uh, Governor Kemp often highlights his support of police officers and the job that they are doing. And, you know, much of this pressure that we've talked about, particularly for more radical policy ideas, has been aimed at mayors of blue cities. Certainly Keisha Lance Bottoms, the mayor of Atlanta, is included there, but um, also included our, our mayors of cities in progressive states where you may get more support from state government. For our state government, do you think that Republicans will feel any pressure to bend on police accountability in a way that they have not before? With the governor, we have no. If Nathan Deal was governor, we'd have a very different discussion. Um because while very supportive of police and he fought very hard to get them more money and to get state law enforcement more money, uh, which, you know, they are underpaid and like all the state employees of Georgia, you know, I feel like that conversation could have been more possible because Nathan Deal was interested in those things. You know, even abstractly, he was interested. Governor Kemp is not. Like, he's made it very clear he's not. He's made it very clear whose side he's on and he is on the side of, you know, Donald Trump. And the reason I frame it that way is because as was widely publicized, Trump had this call with governors telling them that they should dominate the streets and, you know, push back the protesters as hard as they could. I was personally very afraid of hearing that, not because of anything I thought Trump would do, because Trump fundamentally is a coward. It's that it, what are what the governor of Georgia would do, Brian Kemp, because time and time again, with the like one exception of Kelly Loeffler, uh, pointing her other, other what Trump asked him to do. Kemp basically does exactly what Trump says. And he listens to Trump as his North Star of like what his position should be on things. And so whether it was opening up the state way too early or if it's how to handle these protests, Kemp is following Trump's lead. If you want proof, load up Kemp's Twitter and, you know, it has this picture of him and God knows where, I guess the athens Clark County Police Department with like all these screens and people on laptops, you know, having him looking like he is in, you know, the war room managing the, you know, peaceful protesters of in athens Clark County like they are, you know, an ensuing rebellion. And, and, and so on that front, I don't see Kemp leading the charge to, like, let's do anything different with policing because I think Kemp is probably pretty happy with the status quo um, of of policing in, in Georgia and that while he might be personally distasteful of what happened to him on Arbery and George Floyd, he does not see it as a systematic issue. He sees it as, you know, people, individuals making bad decisions. Um, that the police institution should not be held accountable for. And so on that front, um, there are so many other fights going on in in Georgia that I would be surprised if this is one that 
other Republicans pick up on. Uh, I mean, you know, the legislature surprises me, so I won't be shocked if there are some Republicans that say, yeah, we should take a look at it, we should do more. But I, I kind of feel if anything happens, it's going to be the hate crimes statute, and that's it. So, I mean, this on this issue, we are in the same place broadly that we are on a lot of issues uh, for things that Democrats would like to see put into law, but that they can't get their Republican colleagues to take them seriously on. Again and again, we come back to this over and over again, that this is why elections are important. Do y'all think that a reform agenda should be a top Democratic priority on the campaign trail this fall. And and by that, I mean, you know, Democrats, hopefully, if they're if they're doing this well, will be painting a picture of the kind of state and the kind of leadership that they would like to provide, should they take the majority in the House of Representatives, that is a a first step uh, of three necessary steps to take control of the Senate and take control of the governor's office. Should this issue of police accountability be central to the argument that they make about the Georgia that they would lead if they were the ones in charge? I think it should. And I'm going to dial it out to the national level for a minute. I think it should also be a major major issue for presidential, especially given that Joe Biden is kind of considered the presumptive nominee. And Joe Biden has made some major missteps when it comes to handling the police and possible reforms. So I think that it should be a national conversation. I think that in Georgia, especially considering some of the issues that we've had here and especially considering Georgia's history with civil rights, that if this is not talked about, it is a massive oversight and completely inappropriate given the fact that this has come to a head and clearly something needs to change. And finally, before we go today, we'll go here from state to national and then back down to local, because local officials play a really important role here, too. You'll note that there are a few provisions in the House Democrats agenda at the state legislature that speak to the role of prosecutors. It also matters who your prosecutor is. And so we talked with Destiny Bryant. She is a candidate for district attorney in the Alcove District, this is Newton and Walton counties. We talked with her about how she would handle instances of misconduct if she was to become the district attorney over there. I've actually talked to a lot of demonstrators, and I went to a demonstration this past Saturday as well in my community. And the main thing I can say is that people are angry. People are angry across the board, um, both Democrats and Republicans, black, white, young, old, people are angry. And for the most part, people are upset about the idea of a law enforcement officer being able to harm anyone pretty much with impunity. And so I know my community wants to see those changes. I am open to those changes, but I also want to make sure that I'm not going so far over that I am casting a bad light on officers who really do their jobs well. Um, I think ultimately we need the police. If someone breaks in my house, I'm calling the police, right? So we need to just find ways to maintain those good relationships, not only helping the community understand law enforcement, but mainly helping make sure our law enforcement understands the community. And that's why I think other components that I'm looking for in terms of reform do involve better engagement under better circumstances between law enforcement and police officers. But I also think it means letting my community know that if there is unfortunately a circumstance that's even remotely similar to George Floyd, I won't be afraid to prosecute a police officer. If it comes down to that, I will do that. I will do everything that I can to make sure I protect the community because ultimately I'm accountable to my constituents and that's it. So we'll give the last word there to Destiny Bryant. She's a district attorney candidate over in Walton and Newton counties. We published the full interviews that we did with Destiny Bryant and also Representative Eric Allen from Smyrna and Mocha Jasmine Johnson, a candidate for the State House in District 117 up in the Athens area. All of those interviews are published in full in separate files in your podcast feed, so I would certainly encourage you to check those out. Um, This is going to be an ongoing discussion in our politics and on this podcast. So we will be watching these issues as it moves forward. Uh, But with that, we will leave today's discussion there and we will talk to you again soon.
That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks as always to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dobso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all.